Warning, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, contains adult content. Harry and others use profanity, adult language, and discuss adult topics, and so shall we. One more warning, this podcast may contain spoilers. I must stress this for this chapter and the entire podcast, so please proceed with extreme caution. Detective? A voice said in the silence of the house. It's safe for you. You can come out. Bosch knew that voice, but he was operating on such an acute level of intensity, he couldn't immediately compute it and place it. All he knew was that he had heard it before. It's Assistant Chief Irvin, Detective Bosch, the voice said. Could you please step out? That way, you don't get hurt, and we don't get hurt. Yes. That was the voice. Bosch relaxed. He put the knife down on the counter and the sandwich bag in the refrigerator and stepped out of the kitchen. Irving was there, sitting at the living room chair. Two men in suits who Bosch didn't recognize sat on the couch, looking around. Bosch could see his box of letters and cards from the closet sitting on the edge of the coffee table. He saw the murder book they had left on the dining room table that was sitting on the lap of one of the strangers. They had been searching his house, going through his things. Bosch suddenly realized what had happened outside. I saw your lookout. Anyone want to tell me what's going on? Where you been, Bosch? One of the suits asked. Bosch looked at him. Not a single glimmer of recognition hit him. Who the fuck are you? Hello, and welcome to the Thin Blue Line Podcast. I'm Philip Parker, a retired police detective with over 29 years of law enforcement experience. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to rate us five stars or better. Please follow us on Twitter at the Thin Blue Line Pod and our Facebook and Instagram pages, which are set up just for our fans. Also, join us at www.thethinbluelinepod.com for more investigative content. There, you will find more detailed experience concerning Harry Bosch and Michael Connolly. Now all that bullshit is out the way, it's time to get back to work and probe into chapters 30 through 33 of The Last Coyote. Last time on the Thin Blue Line podcast, we explore how what happens when people open their hearts, they get better. Shaped chapters 25 through 29 of The Last Coyote. And today we will be taking a deep dive into chapters 30 through 33. As always, there's the prerequisite spoiler alert. It's my intention to stay away from spoilers, but sometimes shit happens. So please proceed with caution. And now, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. It's time to open up the murder book 
and turn the page to the chronological record so we can do an investigative summary on the information gathered thus far in this chapter. When Harry returns to Los Angeles, there are IED officials along with Chief Irving waiting inside his home. While he was in Florida, Lieutenant Pounds was found dead in his trunk, tortured. Bosch is brought to Parker Center for questioning, but provides a solid alibi concerning his whereabouts. One of the IED officials, Lieutenant Brockman, provokes Harry concerning Pounds' death. Unable to contain his rage, Bosch attacks Brockman and has to be subdued by Chief Irving. Bosch admits to himself that when he used Lieutenant Pounds' name to try to scare Mattel, that probably led to Pounds' death. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's lift up the yellow tape and examine the clues. For the defining theme for chapters 30 through 33 of The Last Coyote is, if you build the guts to do something, anything, you better save enough to face the consequences. Hello, and welcome back to the Thin Blue Line podcast. Harry Bosch. Today, we start this episode what McKittrick had put into the investigative report. And again, listeners, one of the things that you learn as a criminal investigator is not what people say, is what you write in your investigative report. And we see what Harry gleaned from reviewing McKittrick's report that he got from Eno. Let's remember, he, he just got the missing reports from the murder book in files that were at Eno's uh, residence. And one of the missing reports was the investigative summary on the interview of Johnny Fox. Again, it was very obvious, and McKinstry wrote it in there, that he was hindered, or the investigation was hindered by Conklin and Mattel. And this is one of those things, I think I brought it up in one of the podcasts before, is as a criminal investigator, you have a lot of, flexibility, but you put things in writing a certain way, the inference is very clear. And the inference here was what McKittrick put down was that, hey, Conklin and McKittrick was stymieing my investigation for some unknown reason they were protecting Johnny Fox. And that's devastating. And you can see why Eno went in and pulled that investigative summary. Because anyone who read that report could be wondering, just like we are, and McKittrick was like, okay, what the fuck is going on? Why are these guys protecting a suspect of a murder case? And, you know, I wanted to, I didn't do a last podcast, and I don't think I gave it enough, I didn't emphasize enough how important this was. But remember, Bosch finds out that McKittrick was getting $1,000 a month deposit into his bank account. And $1,000 in 19, well, that doesn't seem like a lot of money now. And, but let's put that in perspective because I want to get the gravity of it. $1,000 in 1962 was a lot of money. I mean, that's almost equivalent to $8,500 now. 
So let's imagine that you have a police officer's bank account being deposited $8,500 a month, once a month. Again, this is what I did for a living. I love following the money. Follow the money. Another thing that I was taught as a young investigator, there's usually two types of crimes, crime of passion and crime of profit. And I was after the crime of profit. You know, I was that type of investigator. You know, the crime of passion, the rapes, the, the murders, you know, hell, sometimes a rape and murder can be for profit. But I think you can understand a passionate crime that, you know, you lock somebody up with, opposed to a crime that was motivated by money. And that was me. I followed the money. And we see Michael Conley gives you guys a glimpse of my world. I'm so excited about this portion of the book because this is what I did. You know, first, Bosch calls the different state regulators and find out when the uh, McCage Inc. was incorporated. But the clerk gave Bosch more information. And you can tell here Bosch is usually not a uh, financial investigator because the first thing I would ask, not only when was it incorporated, but also who are the officers? Every business has to have an officer and or a registered agent. And now we can see some co-conspirators here in the naming of this company. You know, we have one person as being the, um, the president, another person being the vice president, another uh, co-conspirator being the treasurer. And you can't get no more empirical evidence to show these people know each other by them being on a shady company. And again, I like following the money because documents don't lie. Documents don't lie. People change stories. But most of the time, 90% of the time, was on the documents that has nothing to do with this investigation. Most jurors will rely on documentary evidence opposed to testimonial evidence in the fact of a person being on the stand and testifying. And didn't you like the metaphor that Michael Conley wrote in this passage of the book when Bosch was waiting for the state regulator to come back on the phone, there was this individual, this cowboy, who hit the jackpot. And the state regulator gave Bosch the information, and metaphorically, he hit the jackpot. And again, Michael Conley wrote here from the book, you know, about being feeling jazzed concerning being on the trail of your suspect and how important financial documents can be in investigation. And he said it. You know, no matter that guy, that cowboy would not understand how being jazzed or the high when you're on the trail of your, of your suspect and you find evidence like this. And Michael Connolly, I'm paraphrasing, but those winners of those jackpots would not understand the feeling of being on the trail. A solid piece of evidence that you uncovered gives you such an investigator high. And again, I felt that before. And again, folks, this is why we like Michael Connolly. And you're getting a glimpse of what I go through, I went through all the time before I retired. That feeling like jazz, yeah. This woman, okay, how can you explain that? You know, because this is what you say. Okay, motherfucker, how can you explain that? You might not say, I don't know this guy. I don't know this guy. But we can show that you guys were in some type of organization together. Because I have your name 
Conklin, your name Mattel, and your name um, Eno, all on articles of incorporation that was getting deposited a thousand dollars a month, and then the fifteenth of the month being wired out to another account. And then you guys like, or do you recognize how Michael Connolly uses LA's traffic to symbolize Bosch frustrations? Because I, you know. When I first started reading these books, you know, Michael Connolly always talks about uh, Harry Bosch's route, uh, his, his driving route, where he, how he gets, he goes down my hall and makes a left turn on to Route 5 and up the hills of the Coinga Pass and all that kind of stuff. And to me, I love it because every one of us, you don't have to be a police officer, but you know the frustration about being stuck in traffic. And you can imagine being on a hunt and then, and then being stuck in traffic. And I like how, to me, I like how Michael Connolly always weaves in Harry's direction, his route, his, his, his route of travel into the books to relay frustration and whatever emotions that Harry is feeling right then. And a common theme that we've been talking about in the last couple of episodes is, quote-unquote, old habits die hard. And I can tell you I've been now retired for going on two years now, and I still at times reach for my gun, and I don't have it with me. And so we see Harry going into his house, and he smells unfamiliar cologne, and the first thing he does is reach for his gun, and that is a symbolism of old habits die hard. And it's so true. You know, at times, because I always kept my badge in my in my pants pocket. I didn't keep it in my, my suit jacket pocket. Because remember what type of investigator I was. So I was mostly casual clothes. So I always kept my wallet on one side and my badge on another side, which caused me to have back, back pains, but I digress. But even today, if I'm in a car and I don't feel something, it feels kind of awkward because the wallet still feels the same. But on the other side, I don't feel that badge. And for like one one thousandth of a second, like, oh shit, where's my badge? Like, uh, Fool, you, you retired. But again, I digress. Old habits do die hard. And don't you like how Michael Connolly draws you in? You know, Harry's on a high. He put together the anagram of where McCabe Incorporated came from. Is you know, is the acronym for all three suspects. And then we're driving to his home. And then Bosch uh, recognizes somebody's in his house. One of the things that I thought was incredible, and I, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it here. Bosch said that for nearly a minute, he stood still and wanted to see if he could hear anything or make sense of what's going on in the, in the house. So we're going to go dark for one minute.
from the book. Detective? A voice said in the silence of the house. It's safe for you. You can come out. Bosch knew that voice, but he was operating on such an acute level of intensity, he couldn't immediately compute it and place it. All he knew was that he had heard it before. It's Assistant Chief Irving, Detective Bosch, the voice said. Could you please step out? That way, you don't get hurt, and we don't get hurt. Now, I did that for a reason, because not too many times I noticed in reading Michael Conley books did he do this. And I just wanted to show the gravity and the intensity that we go through. Because what Bosch says here is that he was in such a high level of intensity, he couldn't immediately compute. Because remember, you're in the basic fight or flight mode. And as law enforcement um, personnel, we're trained to try to fight through that fog, that tunnel vision. But it's very hard. And I said it before in another podcast, but it, it, it bears mentioning again. It's very hard to fight that. Imagine that compression that Bosch was feeling at that time. because, And it took Irving. God knows what would have happened if a voice that came out that he didn't recognize. And that's why I like what Michael Conley does here. Because now you think, okay, it, Bosch even said that voice. I, re- I can recognize that voice. I can calm down. Because that, rec- that, that recognition, maybe career-wise, is a threat, but not a threat to my physical being. Bosch hits at Brockman about taking down a fellow officer. And I'm really not going to get too much into it right now because I'm going to, I brought up in the question of the day. But it bears repeating it again. We really have to, as a society, think about how we hold police officers accountable. Again, I'm going, again, I'm going to get into more of that later on in the question of the day, so please stand by for that. And once again, Michael Conley brings back, he's still weaving the continuities of what Michael Conley is doing. Now he's reached back to the Black Echo. Remember back in the Black Echo, Bosch had lamented about how cops are harder on their own and don't follow protocol concerning warrants and other things. And it's manifested here because Bosch says, you got a warrant? Yeah, we'll get to that later. <laughs> and you know, again, it's true. You know, it's true. We are harder on our own because they are a cautionary tale. And we think, and or at least I, I'm just giving my perspective, when you investigate other police officers, you're living a cautionary tale that you yourself don't want to face that you could possibly go through. So the fact of the matter that they entered his home, didn't show him a warrant, <laughs> I thought was just classic Michael Conley, but again, true in law enforcement sense and the law enforcement world. But, you know, we see Harry is not infallible. And he does something that most criminals do when they are in the back of a police car. They talk. And again, people don't believe it. You know, you get to jury, you get to trial, excuse me, and then you represent to the jury while, while en route back to the station. That's why you always have two. That's why you try to have two in a car, especially on a high-profile case. But en route back to the station for booking, 
the defendant was just rambling off and just talking, 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 talking. And a lot of people say, yeah, that's made for TV. Now, that portion is not, is not made for TV. And Harry exhibited this right here because he goes on through, well, I told her not to do anything. And then Chief Irving says, well, what are you talking about? Uh, Russell, Keisha Russell. I don't know who she is. And then he goes, keeps on talking. And then Irving is trying to shut Bosch up <laughs> said, look, detective, I don't know who these people are, but right now we're here to talk about the death of Lieutenant Harvey Pounds. And just, well, just a gut punch that Bosch feels, not just Bosch, that I felt. Didn't you guys like, holy shit, Michael Conley, this is what I meant by him being a snake, a python. Because he just had us, he had us, you know, Bosch with the summer breeze. He's riding back home. He's feeling high. He just put, the, uh, put together a great uh, puzzle, you know, a great piece of investigation to go towards his mother's death. And then he gets home. And again, he's dealt with ID before. So he, I really wasn't concerned about that because Bosch dealt with ID before and he knows their plan. But then when Michael Conley tells us through Irving that Harvey Pounds is dead, you're like, oh, shit. And that's what I mean. And what's so great about Michael Conley, I know it's coming and he still gets me. <laughs> it's kind of like the magician. You know, okay, he's going to palm it. With, he's going to palm the, the car in his left hand. And so you keep looking at the left hand and you don't see it. And then, boom, you forget about it. and then. It shows up. I mean, that's the literary genius of Michael Conley. And again, that's why I'm doing this podcast. But again, I digress. Harry's doing exactly what he shouldn't do. He should keep his goddamn mouth shut until he gets to Parker Center and then find out what was going on. But he, he himself, like I said, is just human like everyone else. And at times, he know he didn't do anything wrong. Well, he didn't think he did anything wrong that warranted the chief to coming out. But he, he, he talked and kept on running his mouth. And, I, you know, I said this before in, I think it was the Black Echo, when it was dealing with Lewis and Clark. ID investigators go through the same classes as regular detectives. We all go through the same investigative class. And, you know, it amazes me the tactics that they use on their own, especially a detective especially a senior detective. I think that's just, but again, that's how true it is because Michael Conley actually gets into why these ID guys do what they do. But the fact that they had Bosch sitting in Chief Irving's office or conference room for 30 minutes is a classic investigative technique. Make him wait. But then why do that on Harry? I mean, it's just, what it did do, it gave him time to compose himself to do the fight or flight, not to give these guys a break. He's going to go hard at them because if he shows any weakness, he knows, as he said, they had no time, no uh, compunction to put his dick in the dirt. But, you know, I like at the beginning when um, Brickman sits down he, and Harry reached back and says, from the book, I can save you time, Brockman. Tell me what happened and I'll tell you where I was. We'll get this over with. I understand why you think I'm a suspect. I won't hold it against you. 
but you're wasting your time. <laughs> See, think of the cojones. Harry says, I won't hold it against you. <laughs> Again, he has to take control. He says, I, let me take control. These guys think they got the upper hand on me. I'm going to show them they don't have jack shit. And just to say that, and even Brockman says, forget about it, um, Harry. I'm not going to fall for that kind of stuff. But again, Michael Conley has introduced that gal and bluffing. And during this interview, you see Bosch using all of those skills against Brockman. And one of the things that Michael Conley says through Harry is that most ID guys, when they're interviewing police officers, just the mere fact that they are down at IED, being in front of IED people without lawyer or union rep with you is very intimidating, extremely intimidating. To the point, I can tell you a quick story. When I was a young investigator, I got called down to IED. But see, I was blessed because I had a couple of, well, my father for one, to call for advice. So I said, yo, pop, I, got, I just got called down to IED. And you know, he goes, what'd you do? <laughs> I said, I don't know. I just got called down to IED. And he gave me some pointers what to do. And believe me, those pointers what I did when I went down to IED paid off in dividends. But I think I probably had two years on. So that was like my very first time being called down to ID for something. And I'm not going to get into it, but I, let's just say like Harry ID was barking up the wrong tree. And another important line that Michael Conley brings out through Harry is from the book. What you think I'm going to run Brockman? You think that and you don't know the first thing about me. You think that and you haven't prepared for this interview. Why don't you come down to Hollywood one day and I'll teach you how to interview murder suspects for your charge. So we see here, Michael Conley is saying you have to prepare a criminal investigator before someone sits down across from you. You can only bluffing can only get you so far, but you got to know the facts and you got to know just as much. And I think, Michael Conley says it here. You have to know just as much as a lawyer knows but when he has a witness on the stand. You have to know the, what they know and more. You have to know all sides of it as much as possible because, again, bluffing, and that's the last thing you want to do is bluff and blow it because if you do, you don't get a second shot because the suspect now knows that you're full of shit and you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I, I give you tons of them. Like one time, case in point, case in point, I brought a guy in. He was selling narcotics to this one individual who he, he didn't know that we knew he was a distributor. And I had the suspect's toll records. And I see he had called just that morning before we locked him up. So we, you know, we're sitting across from the interview. I, I administered the rights and we're talking. And I said, hey, do you know uh, John Smith? No, I, I don't know John Smith. I don't know what you're talking about. Really? You don't know John Smith? Hey, just tell me, what, what, give me what you did today. He goes, um, well, uh, I got up and I brushed my teeth and I got ready. And, and then, you know, shortly thereafter, you guys busted in the door and, and locked me up. I said, oh, well, didn't you call your mom? 
He looked at me and said, yeah. Yeah, I, I did. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, I did call my mom. And didn't you text your employees saying you're going to be running late? That you just got out of the shower? And then he looked at me because he knew what was coming. Yeah, I did that. And then I said, didn't you also talk to John Smith for five minutes? And he looked at me. And then right there, he knew right then and there, I knew he was full of shit. And you build on that. Now, again, you can bluff a little bit on those edges. But the mere fact he said he never knew the guy, but then he talks to him for five minutes. So when Harry gets up to go get water, that's what he tells Brickman, you don't know, know anything about me. You didn't come prepared for this meeting. Harry goes out, gets, gets some water. And then as he comes back, he sees Brickman coming from another door. The Harry knows that that's access to Chief Irving's main office. And we see that infers that Irving is running the investigation, running the interview, not Brickman. And again, I, I like Irving in a sense. Let me clarify that. But the fact that Irving has to run the lieutenant just tells you how piss poor of an interviewer Lieutenant Brickman is. And we then see Brockman make another error by not carrying the rights cards with him. I mean, you always keep the rights cards with you because if a person wants to agree to an interview, and you have to administer the Miranda rights, you don't want to have to go search for it because by the time you search for it and they come back and then you get them to sign it, they probably change their minds. Now, that happened to me before. And then we also see that once Harry signed it, you read it. You know, again, my, my common practice was we went down every line and then you make them initial it. You know, you, you, know, you had the right to remain silent, you know, initial it. You understand these rights, you know, each one of them. And then when they sign it, you watch them sign it, and then you turn it over and look at it. And I just really want to clarify something that happened here. And then Bosch's reaction to some of the questions that Brockman asked him. Right now, Harry is a suspect. He was just administered his Miranda rights. So when you are a suspect, you can answer whatever questions you, you feel like answering. Brockman is used to asking officers questions in an administrative sense. Now, in an administrative sense, if you're not the target of investigation and or if your superiors don't believe you're the target of investigation, you are compelled to answer any questions that your administrative or your supervisors ask you. Now, on a criminal case, just like Harry did here, you can say, fuck you. I'm not going to tell you anything. And that's the difference. Because, you know, this is kind of harking. Again, I love the continuity. What Michael Connolly talked about back in the Black Echo. When Harvey Pounds asked Harry some questions. And Harry said, well, I want my union rep. He said, well, you, you want to go that route? Then fine. You can give me a gun and badge. And, you know, then he started uh, ticking off the things he could do to Harry. You know, when Harry, while Harry was seeking his union rep. So, again, I just want to clarify that this is how Harry can say, fuck you, I'm not going to tell you who I was visiting down in Florida because he is now a criminal suspect. But as I said, as we started this uh, episode, Bosch is still a human. And we see Brockman is able to get under his skin and is able to provoke Harry. And Harry loses his temper. 
And, you know, Harry pins him against the uh, wall with the table, and he's able to fight off uh, Brockman's um, junior ID officer, Tolliver. But did you guys love the fact how Irving rushes in? He still has his street skills because he was able to uh, knock Bosch down. So once a street officer, always a street officer. And I, again, you got to respect Irving's uh, street skills because he's still able to knock someone on the ass. And that brings us to this episode's question of the day. And the question of the day comes from The Last Coyote, chapters 32-33. During a confrontation with IED officials, Bosch made reference to a good cop, quote-unquote, going to the closet, which means committing suicide, concerning unsubstantiated allegations of supplying illicit narcotics to underage teenagers. Question. Should allegations found to be unsubstantiated be accessible to the public? And as the recording of this podcast, 93% of you said, no, if investigated properly, these allegations should be privileged and contained within the department. You know, one, again, as I say all the time, thank you guys so much for participating in the poll and taking the time out to help this podcast. And this particular issue is very important. So, so let's get at to what happened. What happened was there was an allegation that Brockman, they came across Brockman's desk, that a B cop was supplying illicit narcotics to underage teenagers. And this cop felt the weight of IED coming down on him. And he felt so helpless that he, well, I'm assuming helpless, but the weight of the IED investigation made him commit suicide. Now, there could be a multitude of reasons why this individual committed suicide, but it did not help, possibly, that he thought his life and or career was over. Excuse me, not his life, but his career was over. And it looked like, upon investigation, that these teenagers were lying. And it was just a way to get them to have the officers stop pushing them off the corner because he was doing his job. You know, they were probably... um, trespassing and or incommoding or whatever you want to call it on the sidewalks and becoming a nuisance. So he was doing his job and moving them along. Now, I can tell you from a vice investigator, I got those type of complaints all the time. And how things are handled now opposed to back then, when I got those type of uh, complaints, I moved them along. I mean, I did tactics like post my police car right in the block, you know, make them move on because no one wanted to sell drugs when the police officer's scout car is sitting right there. And when I was in vice, I targeted them because that was my job. And once they got to know who, who I was, then the complaints start coming in. Oh, oh, do you, you know, this guy's harassing us. We're not doing anything wrong, blah, 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 whatever, whatever. And I had good officials to say, yeah, whatever, Phil, keep doing your job. Now, I'm not begrudging ID from doing their job. But as the question of the day points out, if ID or whoever, whomever, excuse me, follow up the investigation, I'm not saying don't investigate complaints, you have to. But if 
But once you follow up the complaints and you find out the complaints are bogus and or unfounded, then move on. But I'm going to tell you, my listeners, those complaints right now, at least in my department, bogus or not, becomes public knowledge. And they actually, my department, keep a score. And I remember when police chief said, well, he even said it, where there's smoke, there's fire. Like, what? What? What do you mean where there's smoke, there's fire? Well, we want to be on top of uh, weeding out road cops. Well, only thing you weeded out were aggressive cops. You, you know, you, you rewarded the lazy cops who sat around and did nothing. And you, you punished the aggressive cops who went out there and were doing their job. Again, please, I think you guys know me enough, and I think my brother and I established this. Hold us accountable, but be fair about it. And if we do wrong, there's appropriate steps in there to, to, to handle it, whatever the degree, the severity of whatever the wrongdoing was. But if there was nothing founded, that should be put on the side and handled as privilege. But I'm going to tell you today in 2020, every allegation against a police officer becomes public knowledge. And again, only thing you're asking um, officers to do is not to be proactive. And as I said a long time ago, if you have a, a, reactary, a reactionary um, police force, you have a police force that is losing because you want police to be proactive. You want police to be out there in criminals' faces, letting them be known it's going to be uncomfortable because we're not going to just sit back and let you commit your crime and then, you know, play catch me as you can. Sorry, I'm on my soapbox. I'm, as you can tell, I'm very passionate about this because what we're doing as, in a society right now is we're pushing away good people because they know that the scrutiny is just unbearable. It's unrealistic. It's not even unbearable. It's unrealistic. You're asking these guys to be more than human. And believe me, I've, I've been on the end of complaints being, you know, bogus complaints against me 20 years ago, being brought up in trial for something unrelated because it was an allegation. So that's a, that's enough of that. And now I feel like I am a rambling or you know, have a rant. <laughs> and, you know, this is not that type of podcast. I usually try to keep it light and um, fun. So I'm sorry about that. It's just, you know, I had to get that off my chest. But again, so much. Thank you so much for participating in the poll and giving your feedback. I really appreciate it. And uh, we're going to get back to hitting the streets. And as we uh, come out of the break, we then see after the altercation between Harry and Brockman, Dr. Anoho comes in. And Dr. Anoho tries to talk to Harry. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. And he turns off the phone because it seems like the phone was still on and the phone was left open to possibly an intercom system in Chief Irving's office. And then she said, I hope that was a mistake. He said, don't be surprised. And, you know, the chief is probably still listening now. And she looks at Harry like he is uh, paranoid. He says, look, I've been through this before. And, you know, I love how, again, that continuity, because what Michael Conley is referring to is, remember, Harry's house was bugged back in the Black Echo. And so, you know, he has foundation to be paranoid, but Dr. Noho doesn't know this. But I, I point this out because, again, having now four books under our belt, 
we're starting to develop this this universe, which is um, Harry Bosch. And also something that happened um, from the book. Yes, he called and explained the situation and asked me to come over to sit in. I have to say, wait, wait, wait a minute. Before we go any further, did you talk to him? Did you tell him about our sessions? No, of course not. Okay. For the record, I just want to reiterate, I do not give up my protection under the patient-doctor relationship. Are we okay with that? For the first time, she looked away from him. He could see her face turning dark with anger. Do you know what an insult that is for you to tell me that? What do you think I'll tell him about our sessions? Just because he asked me to? We see, again, I told you this why I like Dr. Noho. And I said that in episode one and two of this uh, book. is her fire. I love her fire. And, you know, she, she's hurt. That, and she even says it here. You don't trust anybody. Harry doesn't trust her. He doesn't trust anybody. And that is a very lonely state for Harry because, again, I now this portion of personality of Harry, I don't understand because I've been very fortunate to have someone who I can trust. You know, uh, I call my wife my ride or die woman. <laughs> and, and, and so whenever I had a problem with the police department or just personally, I can always lean on her shoulder. So, and not to have someone who you can trust. And like Dr. Noho says to Harry here, you don't trust anybody. Has to be a very lonely existence. And as we finish up this podcast, Michael Connolly gives us a glimpse into the reality. And it's not back in 1995. I think you could possibly say it's still current today from the book. The civilized people in the world, the ones who hide behind the culture and art and politics and even the law, they're the ones who to watch out for. They've got a perfect disguise going for them, you know? But they're the most vicious. They're the most dangerous people on earth. Is to this episode's Everyone Counts or No One Counts Person. Am I Everyone Counts or No One Counts Person for The Last Coyote, chapter 30 through 33, is Deputy Chief Irving. Now, you know, I know Irving's presence here was short, but it was so impactful. And, you know, even Dr. Noho says here in this chapter that she thinks Irving is the only person so far in Bosch's court. But even before then, the smooth tone, as they call it, Mr. Clean, was sitting in Harry's um, living room. And the calming voice, he said, no, you come out now, Harry, you know, so that you don't get hurt and we don't get hurt. The fact that he forcefully told Harry, no, you're going to ride downtown with me. 
no, no, that leaves no debate. And the fact that he was still able to have his street knowledge to knock Harry on his ass when Harry attacked Lieutenant Brockman just was like the cherry on top of the pie. So I like Irving when he represented here, a strong leader, but still has his old street cop um, habits. And that's why for The Last Coyote, chapters 30 through 33, my everyone counts or no one counts person is Deputy Chief Irving Irvin. concludes chapters 30 through 33 review of The Last Coyote. Boy, Lieutenant Harvey Pounds is now dead. OMG. I mean, he has been our nemesis for three and a half books, and it looks like the way he died, being tortured, stuck in a uh, trunk. Just, I don't know. Is there a more apropos way for him to go out? I mean, you know, what even Brockman said, you know, hey, don't you feel some remorse? You know, the guy had a wife and kid in college, and Harry says, well, he was a prick at work. He's probably a prick at home. <laughs> so, boy, but damn, Michael. I mean, whoo. Did you guys see that coming? I know when the first time I read this book, I did not see that coming. And it still jazzes me because I knew it was coming. I, you know, for this podcast, like I told you before, I reread these things and so I can be fresh in my mind. But yeah, Harvey Pounds is no more. Do we uh, pour one for Harvey Pounds or do some special remembrance for him? I mean, I listen to other podcasts and, you know, usually the host when a crucial character passes away, they usually do some type of sound effect in memorial to the person. So what about a gun salute? Yeah, a gun salute for the late, great Harvey 98 Pounds. Is that too crass? I, I don't think so. But hey, if you guys thought so, let me know. And if uh, I, I'll leave it up to you guys. If you didn't like it, I won't do it again. So thanks a lot again for hanging in there with me. As I always say, this podcast is all of you and feeding me and, and making me feel invigorated to keep on going because I love doing this. So thank you so much and continue to go to Google, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, remember, please rate me five stars or better, or you might get a gunshot like Harvey Pounds. It's like, you know, joke, joke. <laughs> but I really do appreciate this, and I appreciate you guys. And also, remember, it's valuable. Please, feedback, feedback, feedback. You know, I love the feedback. I love the interaction with you guys. So whatever way you want to contact me, 
through Facebook or whatever social media, Instagram, or emailing me. I love your feedback and keep them coming. And also keep telling your friends and family. It doesn't go unnoticed that our growth is because of you. And I know it's because the word of mouth is getting out there. So I really, really appreciate that. So keep telling your friends and family about the podcast so we can continue to grow. Also, don't forget to join us at www.thethinbluelinepod.com for more investigative content where you know you will find a more detailed experience concerning Harry Bosch and Michael Conley. Next up on The Thin Blue Line, we'll continue our deep dive into The Last Coyote, chapters 34 through 37. And as I said last episode, hold on, because Michael Conley is not done with us yet. I'm Philip Parker, and I'm 107 for the remainder. Bye.